Welcome back to Sparks in Action. This is Donna. I have a wonderful guest today, a guest that I'm so happy to have on the podcast. And I'll give you a little bit of information about her and then you get to hear from her. Her name is Sarah Mednick, Dr. Sarah Mednick. And Dr. Mednick is a sleep researcher at University of California in Irvine. She focuses, her focus is on napping and performance and more. She is the author of The Hidden Power of the Downstate, which is her most recent book, and the author of Take a Nap, Change Your Life. She runs a sleep lab and explores methods for boosting cognition by napping, as well as other inquiries into sleep and rest and aspects of the nervous system. Dr. Mednick has been funded by the National Institute of Health, the NSF, the Department of Defense of Naval Research, that is DARPA. She was awarded uh, uh, the Office Naval Researcher Investigation Award. I don't know if I got that right, but that's- Young Investigator Award. Young, per forgive me. <laughs> yeah, sorry. And that was in 2015. And I am so very happy to have you here. So thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. So let's get started. I think we'll go, we'll start with your earlier book and then move into your current book. But sure. they all blend so beautifully as I, as I can tell. So my first question to you is, can you give us basic information and data uh, that we all need to know about how and why naps are so beneficial. What is that magic restorative quality that they hold? Well, it's a, it's a surprising quality, right? Because how is it that if we slept for say 20 minutes or an hour only in the middle of the night, we would feel pretty bad. And then, you know, so, so there's something sort of special and and it is bizarrely magical about the benefits of sleep in the day, short bouts of sleep. And there wasn't really a lot of good research that was kind of trying to piece apart the mechanisms of um, what was going on in the brain before I started working on this. And then um, what we discovered was that actually that small amount of sleep in the middle of the day could lead to as much um, cognitive benefits and emotional benefits and um, creativity benefits as a full night of sleep. And depending on how, what kind of sleep you get in your nap, um, if you go through all the different sleep stages, which takes about 90 minutes, then you're getting basically two days in one day in terms of um, benefits to your perceptual systems, benefits to memory, um, emotional memory, um, attention, alertness and uh, creativity as well and, and motor performance. So, so we were pretty surprised to learn that. Um, and it turns out that the reason why naps are so powerful is that they are a, um, they come at a point in, in the day where you can get equal amounts of, they're right in the middle of the day, right? Usually like six hours after you wake up or something like that. And they come at a time where you get equal amounts of these three really important sleep stages, which is stage two sleep, slow wave sleep, and REM sleep. Yeah. And when you can get a little sort of um, 
like a mini amount of each of those, you actually get the same benefits of having as as having a full night of sleep with the caveat that that's with a full night of sleep, you know, with regular full nights of sleep coming in between those um, in between those naps. So right. it's a, sort of surprising. Um, and then obviously you're interested in meditation and yoga nidra. And so the question is, you know, how are those also similar? So that's an interesting Absolutely. To get into. Yeah. 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 And, and um, just going back to the slow wave and the REM, could you just say a little bit about it so that when people hear it, you know, I think we all think we know what it is, but it's great to hear from a scientist, like precisely what it, what they are. Yeah. So the first stage of sleep that you enter is stage one sleep. And that's this very sort of interim um, period between waking and sleep. And it lasts about two to five minutes. But then you get into something called stage two sleep. And what you find is that your brain slows down. Um, your The electrical activity slows down. The um, your your heart rate slows down. Your both the central nervous system, which is sort of the the brain and the neural activity, but also the body uh, from the autonomic nervous system that also slows down, and you get this really big break there. And that continues on. That slowing um, continues on through what you get into slow wave sleep. And slow wave sleep is the kind of what we call the deepest sleep. Mm -hmm. It's because your brain is entering into this state where it's actually communicating in these very large bursts of activity. And then there's very little communication. So you see mm. these like big waves of activity flowing across the brain where there's a um, excitatory uh, depolarization across the whole brain, and then suddenly a quiet. Mm -hmm. And you get into a state where your brain activity is kind of stopped. Um, and that slow wave turns out to be the more slow waves you have, the more we call slow wave sleep. Right. Um, and that turns out to be a very important um, physiological event where your body, your autonomic nervous system has headed into the rest and digest mode of parasympathetic activity. And your brain has headed into this very restorative state as well, where you are able to engage in deep protein synthesis that you couldn't get, you know, you're basically able to restore all of those resources that you used up during sleep. Uh -huh. So that's why slow wave sleep is considered the most restorative. Uh -huh. And it's also where you get a lot of um, the uh, consolidation or strengthening of the memory circuits that you've learned um, during the day, you strengthen those circuits during slow wave sleep. So once you get out of slow wave sleep, then you get into REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And REM sleep is a very different period from slow wave sleep. It's actually a highly active brain period where your brain activity um, actually looks very similar to waking. It used to be called paradoxical sleep because just looking at the EEG, you couldn't really tell that somebody was in REM sleep, but you're in this state where you're body is completely paralyzed so that you don't act out your dreams, but you have dream time. You have um, a lot of creativity mm -hmm. um, is inspired there and um, your perceptual systems get strengthened during that period as well. So there's a lot of different um, qualities to all the different sleep stages. That is so interesting about the whole idea of paradoxical sleep. I love that. And so I have a question for you just to go back on that for a moment. Uh, regarding the timing for slow wave, like how 
if you were to sort of have to put an average amount of time optimally that one is in slow wave, what would that be? So the 90 minute sleep cycle usually gets broken up into 30 minute increments. Okay. Where the first 30 minutes is stage two sleep. The next 30 minutes is slow wave sleep. And okay. the next 30 minutes is mostly REM sleep, but it also depends on what time of day you nap. Mm. So naps earlier in the day have very little slow wave sleep. Um, and that is because the second that you wake up, um, you've already, you know, you've restored yourself. You're at this like really good optimal level of, of um, sort of sleep need where it's very low. But as you, as you are up, you know, and waking during the day, you have an increased need for slow wave sleep. So as you take naps, you have more and more slow wave sleep in your nap. Okay. So naps later in the afternoon actually have a lot of slow wave sleep and naps earlier in the day have a lot of REM sleep. Mm, which, bring, which brings us to a really good question about um, everybody uses the word optimize a little too much these days, myself, including, you know, we're not trying to hack our bodies or optimize them. That said, you know, um, I'd like to hear your input on your ideas about if a person, let's say, let's go to like perhaps an average of an 7.30 a.m. wake up, right? Let's say, so if in your estimation, if one is going to do a nap or a guided deep rest, like a yoga nidra or something that's going to put them in a very restorative state, how many hours after awakening would it be best to do that so you don't really interfere with sleep pressure later in the evening? Yeah, it's a good question. So I developed something called the nap wheel and it was on the cover of my first book, but then they took it off. I guess it was too expensive to keep making it, but now <laughs> it's on my website, um, sarahmednick.com and you could find it called the nap wheel and okay. it helps you figure out depending on what time you've woken up, what is the distribution of your nap across the 20, across the whole night, basically across the whole day. Okay. So you can find out. So if I, if I don't want to get into too much slow wave sleep, what time in the day should I be napping so that I have just a little bit of slow wave sleep, but more REM. Um, and usually, you know, just a quickie is that you could do sort of, you know, around six hours after you wake up is sort of the optimal sleep time. Mm. And that's usually when the siesta has always occurred. You know, this kind of feeling of having that afternoon dip happens around then. And it's actually a little bit earlier than what you would think because people say around three o'clock, they got tired. But if you kind of shifted a little bit earlier, then you're in this state of um, able to get into slow wave sleep, but also able to get out and get into lighter sleep, which means that you wake up feeling better. Yeah, yeah. I can attest to that. I monitor my my drops in energy very, very closely and um, not obsessively, just closely because of the nature of my work and also just my personal needs. And I will tell you that if I'm up at, let's say, 7.30, 8 o'clock, you know when I start feeling it? Just before noon. It's so apparent to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's and that's just, great that you, because I think it's so much, so much of figuring out the when is really personal right? So yeah. like when you should do what you should do, there's recommendations that are based on thousands of data points, but then there's also you, right? And so there's <laughs> these universal factors and then there's what works for you in this day, in this moment. How did you sleep the night before? Right. Um, what are you used to, right? And what's your, what's your schedule like? So you yeah. have to really work within, you know, understanding the universal rhythms and then also get into, and then what works. Right. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, everybody's composition and everything is, is just such a such an amalgam of so much. Um, I wanted to ask you um, if you I was reading something about like the the sort of debate, like, are we humans really designed for monophagic sleep? Are we really supposed to be sleeping like one seven or eight hour cycle? Or in fact, are we wired for various sleep-wake, sleep-wake cycles? And I'd love to hear your take on that and what your research, if your research has addressed this and what it... Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. If you talk to people, there's about 50% of people are nappers and 50% are non-nappers. And the non-nappers really hate napping. (laughs) And it's interesting, you know, like there's not a lot of things that people really hate um, and feel terrible when they do it. And so I was really interested in that question to say, well, you know, I wrote this book and I'm trying to tell everybody to take a nap. And at the same time, I get people saying, oh my God, I'm not a napper and I hate napping. And I feel like crap when I wake up. So we started doing a series of studies that um, investigated the differences between nappers and non-nappers. And what we found is that, you know, non-nappers actually don't really get a lot of benefits out of napping, Um, that they do get into deep, slow wave sleep and they don't, they can't get out of it. Mm. And then when they wake up, they feel really heavy. And, you know, think about if your brain is suddenly in this super slow wave period, that's very different than waking when we're multitasking and our brains have to act really quickly. So um, then we tried to get people, non-nappers to train to nap. And we had period where like for a month, they would train to nap about three, four times a week. And we found across a month, no differences in terms of, um, uh, they, they never gained a benefit of that nap even after a month of nap practice. And it made me think- But we're talking about the non-nappers. The non-nappers, yeah. yeah. Nappers always get benefits from naps. There's no, you know, those are the people that I've been studying, but actually (laughs) I have been studying the non-nappers and and those are the the people on the other end of the distribution that never really got a benefit. And that's, that's the key is that, you know, it looks like there could be really circadian differences between Mm. people. Mm -hmm. Um, There could be genetic differences between people who are nappers and non-nappers. There's a lot to be understood there that we don't really understand, but it's clear that um, for some people, napping is not the answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just, just so I'm clear, it's so interesting. Um, For your non-nappers, were they, were they doing short naps, like a 20 minute to 30 minute or were they? We were asking them to nap um, whatever, you know, we would try to get them to nap a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, But if they just tried to nap, we would have them nap whatever they would nap, like nothing longer than 90 minutes. Um, But we would try to get them to nap anywhere between say 20 minutes to 90 minutes. Right. Okay. I thought I was looking at the, um, came across the NASA study from the nineties where the 26 minutes of nap or rest yielded, or I could have the percentage. Let me just, I wrote that down. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, Yeah. A nap as short as 26 minutes had a 36% improvement in task performance and 50% in overall alertness. Yeah. And so there's nothing, it's like the 26 is just a mean. So there's nothing about the 26. <laughs> no magic. There, no. Yeah. There's, it's like if 25, oh, you lose, you know, like 27 too much. Um, but I think that uh, the general idea of that is that those short power naps are stage two sleep. And that mm. means that you're getting into 
sleep and you're getting, you know, the autonomic um, come down, you're getting this, the central nervous system come down, but you're not getting into deep, slow wave sleep. And so it's a safe amount. Um, and you're really in that stage two sleep period. And that's really helpful and mostly helpful for alertness and kind mm. of attention is, right. you know, that kind of um, executive function stuff. Okay. I, I we're, we're going to move on to some other things, but I, I have a question. Is there, is there a term when, when one is in like very deep parasympathetic mode. Is there a word that we can use other than deep parasympathetic mode? Well, and I know we'll book, get into this in yeah. your restore book. Yeah, yeah exactly. Go so ahead, in though. my book, I really, you know, for me, learning about the autonomic nervous system took years and I don't know why it's so complicated. And, 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 and I can see that a lot of people really don't understand how the autonomic nervous system works. And I, and I understand why it's very hard to figure out for some reason. And so that's why I basically changed the wording around. So I tried to make it more intuitive. Um, mm. And, you know, there's two branches of the autonomic nervous system. One is the um, sympathetic fight or flight. And I called that rev because it revs you up. And then the other one, which is the sister system. And it comes in right when you start to get revved up and it tries to calm you down. And it does in the moment, but it also does so over a long period of time, like specifically over sleep. And I call that restore because it's restoring you back to a place where you're calm and your resources are filled up again and you know replenished. So I think the rev restore um, dynamic or sort of, you know, those two systems really work really well to think about, like, I need to get back into restorative mode or I need to get revved up. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that you demarcated them that way. I just think it's so down to earth. It's like so user-friendly and it's so on point. Thanks. Yeah, I really <laughs> like that. So, um, so yeah, so we're moving into the power of the downstate as well. Um, but of course I have to ask about sleep, rest, and memory consolidation. And you write a lot about this, which I truly appreciate. And I'm wondering if you could say something about the cleansing that happens during sleep, but also during restore in either a nap or a yoga nidra or whatever works for somebody. And what's actually happening with the glymphatic system and the brain cleansing? Because to me, this is so pivotal for all of us for our overall health and cognitive health. So please. Yeah. So there was um, the lymphatic system is, it's, was developed, it was understood by a woman, um, a Danish uh, uh, um, uh, neuroscientist who discovered that during slow wave sleep, you have this flushing out of toxins from the brain. And these toxins are byproducts of just activity in the brain, brain activity. Um, and so the more the more sort of, you know, you're thinking and doing and, and, and behaving during the day, the more of these toxins get left over in the brain. And at night, your brain is basically flushing the system um, during deep sleep to get them out, get these toxins out of the brain, because if they don't get out, they can form these tangles. They can accumulate and form tangles. And those tangles are the ones that are associated with dementia and Alzheimer's over a longer period of time. So that's really, it was super exciting um, to uh, figure out this mechanism because it's not only associated with um, dementia and Alzheimer's in your 70s and 80s, it actually starts, you know, that that poor sleep problem starts when we're young. Mm -hmm. 
mm. you know, when we're in our thirties and our forties mm-hmm. and the, and, and that the type of poor sleep that you have in your forties and fifties can predict your um, risk for these other kind of memory pathology disorders later in life. So it seems like a very clear mechanism for helping um, the brain stay healthy. And, 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 and what's interesting is, is people were focusing on this as being a slow wave sleep phenomenon. Um, and recent research is showing actually one of the key um, elements of slow wave sleep is that your restore system gets turned on mm. and that that lymphatic clearance actually is most um, um, is, is dependent not only on the slow waves, but also on that really big burst of restorative energy that happens during slow wave sleep. So it's both the central nervous system having this um, slow waves in the brain, but it's also the body having this big parasympathetic restorative system that helps with this cleansing of these toxins. Okay. And uh, just a few specific questions about the cleansing of the toxins. So um, you were mentioning the tangles and I, in my mind, I always thought tangles and plaques were a separate phenomenon in the brain. Am I right about that or am I off? They, they are, but they also are related. So, okay. so you can have, you know, the tangles can start and then they can create these plaques and the plaques can create the hardening Ooh, um, okay. and the rigidity of the brain. So yes. they're, they're interrelated. Okay. Okay. That's really good to know. Um, and what about adenosine? Like, is that, I don't, can you just say a little bit about how that functions in our sleep pressure and does it need to get cleansed out at night? (laughs) Yeah. So adenosine is really cool. Um, it's, you know, the, when we learned in kind of, you know, biology class that we had ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell. And and it really is, we need to make ATP and then we need to use ATP to do anything, to think, to move, everything requires ATP. Um, And when you use ATP, you actually get this um, byproduct called ADP, which is adenosine. And so the more you're active during the day, you have this buildup of adenosine. Um, And that is um, a signal for the brain. The buildup of adenosine is a signal for the brain to go to sleep. Yeah. And it's, it's a great system, you know, it just, it has so much logic to it where then, you know, you say, okay, well, I have this buildup of adenosine. I need to get to sleep. And that's where coffee comes in, right? Because coffee can mimic um, adenosine and then it looks to your brain like, oh, I'm actually not tired, right? So you can kind of trick your brain into thinking that you're not sleepy and then just keep pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very important signal um, for the brain to understand that I've done enough today and I'm ready for sleep. And is the adenosine signaling for sleep pressure qualitatively different than the nap signaling or the, Oop, I need a little restoration, I need to unplug for a bit here. So the, yeah, the nap signaling, it's not clear whether adenosine buildup is, is related to nap. Napping may be more of a circadian effect where you have this, um, you have this, you have these two different signals that are happening in the morning. You have this really big burst of arousal from your circadian system that tells you it's morning, it's time to be awake. Um, and that stays high, Um, for until around like noon or one, and then it starts to decrease. 
at that same time that it's decreasing, your homeostatic driver, that sleep pressure that makes you sort of need to get back to sleep is increasing across the day. So when you have the circadian system start to start to fade and you have this increase in slow wave, I'm sorry, in your need for slow wave sleep and the sleep pressure, there seems to be this point, which is um, that, that, that allows you to get to sleep during the middle of the day, mm. but not everybody has it. Um, yeah. and, and it's a little dip in your circadian rhythm. And that's when a lot of people feel tired. They reach for the coffee, you know, they are, their, their interest in things start to lag. Um, and not everybody has that, but the people who do really have, you know, decreases in body temperature, you know, that is a real phenomenon of the circadian system. Yeah. Wow. So this, this makes me wonder, like, how can we help people <laughs> find the sweet spot, not so much for napping, but actually for sleeping in the evening where they can really learn to begin to listen to that? Maybe this is a rhetorical question. I'm just sort of wondering, you know, where they can. No, I think um, it's really important um, because, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that you're very, <clears throat> excuse me, sensitive to your energy legs, right? And and I think people ignore those those signals from their body. And, you know, if they get them, they just drink coffee and they keep going, right? But right. our body is telling us, you know, as that great title, our body keeps the score, right? So our body knows when is it flagging? You know, when does it need um, to either take a nap or go for a walk or, you know, break away from whatever intense thing that we're dealing with. Right. Um, and, and we just, it's a practice yeah. to listen to the signals that you're getting and, and also, you know, decide that you're more important than whatever is out there and that you need to then <laughs> listen to that signal and do something about it. <laughs> That's the magic bullet right there. Yeah, know? it is. It's very right. hard. The lure of I can keep doing, doing, and and all the things that pull us. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. So, um, thank you for that. Yeah. So I want to uh, give you opportunity because it's I love you know your your power of the um, downstate and how you understand and describe the rev and restore. And so can you just um, thread that into this conversation? You know, yeah. Like, yeah. So the downstate is a term I developed um, while writing the book. Well, I had developed it, you know, I had this idea of a downstate, which is that, you know, we are rhythmic animals and, and rhythms means you have a upstate where things are excitatory and then a downstate where they start to go into um um, a lower energy mode. Um, so activity and repose, activity and repose. And, and the downstate, I found that rhythm actually repeats across every physiological system that you look at. You have an upstate and a downstate in your heart rhythm, and you have it in your respiratory rhythm. You have it in your uh, metabolic system, you know, the digestion. Mm. Um, and you have it in your cognition as well. Your brain has periods where it just really needs to rest. Mm -hmm. um, and so the downstate is sort of a term, an umbrella term for all of those restorative practices and periods that allow us to replenish our resources, whether it's you know, I can go into, you know, there's sleep, obviously, and it comes from this term of the slow wave, which the slow wave has an upstate and a downstate. And that's okay. sort of how I got the term. Um, but you find this downstate in your metabolic system, which is why, 
intermittent fasting. You know, what is that about? That's giving your metabolism a downstate when it naturally needs it, when it needs to go into restore mode, because then we can talk about the rev restore. How does that work? The rev is the upstate and the restore is the downstate, right? And so there's optimal periods where you're naturally revved up and you're really able to take in nutrients and process, you know, your glucose metabolism metabolism is really high and you're able to process food much better when you're in your upstate. And then your system is pooped out, right? It's, it's been working all day. It's been eating all day. It's been processing food all day and it goes into a downstate. That's the time where you should naturally stop eating. But of course, you know, we eat all the time. People are constantly snacking, you know, midnight runs to get ice cream, like all this kind of stuff and the convenience food thing that all of this stuff is basically trying to um, process food and nutrients at a time when your metabolism is in its downstate and it's the most inefficient thing. And all of that food just gets turned into fat. Mm. You know, I feel I'm sitting here thinking, I, I have so, I, there's so much about this. I, I want to go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to have a part two if that works. Yeah, for you. well, there's that. I, that is the thing about the power of the downstate is that it's very comprehensive across every, you know, across many different aspects of our bodies and brains because it goes into the autonomic nervous system, sleep and circadian rhythm, exercise right. and metabolism and nutrition. And it's it's hard to really like. How do you say all of that in a 20 minute podcast? Right, right, right. And, and especially in all those domains, it would be really nice to do a little bit of a deeper dive and look at each of those domains yeah. and each of those systems and what's really happening. I mean, I have a special interest in endocrine and I would love to hear you talk about that as well. Um, so maybe we'll do that. Sure. Yeah, you do. <laughs> be happy to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, do, we'll do that once we're, uh, we'll figure that out. That, beautiful. Um, because I know you have some really interesting things to say about heart rate variability. There's just a lot here. And I love, and I know we don't have time for it in this particular, um, you know, episode, but we'll, we'll get deeper into it, into your idea about resonance that, you know, creating more synchrony between our upstates and downstates. So as we're getting ready to leave, I want to give you an opportunity to do two things. And I know this is pressure. It's like, in a minute, can you give people, and we'll, we'll come back to this folks. So you'll hear from Sarah then, or Dr. Mimic. Um, can you give you can people, call me Sarah. Sarah okay, <laughs> cool. Can you give people a couple of tools um, that you think if, you know, if I were to say, here's a toolkit, but you only put in like two or three tools, what would Sarah, what would you recommend people put in their toolkit so they can create this resonance between their upstates, downstates, so they can enhance sleep, cognition, and you know, just ba basically overall. Yeah. Um, so I would, I, I definitely refer people to the book because in the book I have a downstate recovery plus plan where it's a four week plan and each week is devoted to one of the domains of autonomic sleep, exercise and nutrition. And there's five to seven action items that people can take um, and just, you know, try one and, 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 and then keep that going and then try the next one on the next week. And so you can build up and, and each one of them is really powerful, but just as a, um, you know, to give people a little bit of a teaser of that. So since we've been talking about circadian rhythms, I'll talk about that one is, is our, 
because our systems have these rhythms um, and every system has a rhythm, um, the way you can best support that rhythm is by being consistent in your timing um, because your body is looking for clues as to, well, when should I be in my upstate? When should I be in my downstate? You know, and it's, you know, this is why, you know, a half hour before your, your lunchtime, your body starts to send you hunger signals, right? Your, you know, hunger pangs. And that's because you're con- pretty consistent about lunchtime. That's like the, the one thing that we're pretty consistent about because we have it at work and we have to do a certain thing. I'm at a certain time. And that is your system saying, I like consistency and I can, I can actually build up a, a, um, I can prep the body to receive nutrients at that time because you eat lunch, say at noon every day. Right. Right. So doing, you know, really trying to get your rhythms um, and your actions to be consistent in terms of exercise, when are you exercising? What type of exercise are you doing at what time of day? Um, when are you starting to uh, go into your downstate at night for reducing light exposure and uh, calming yourself down and getting into a sleep mode? Yeah. Keeping that really consistent. When are you napping, right? So right. keeping your naps really consistent. All of those things, your body will will give you the gift of giving you what you want more when you give it consistent system, uh, consistent rhythms. Okay, that's great. And that's where we're going to begin um, section two of this podcast, awesome. part two. That's <laughs> so great. So much great information here, Sarah, so much. Um, I want to give you an opportunity in the less in a minute we have left to let people know how they can find you and any events you have coming up that you'd like people to know about. Yeah. Um, so I'm on, I have a website, which is sarahmednick.com and, um, I give talks and you can find my, um, the speakers bureau that you can communicate with to get organized a talk on my contacts. My email is there. I love getting emails from people just, you know, telling me your, your interesting ideas about how the mind and the brain and the body work um, and, or questions, you know, I can answer questions for you. Um, and then I'm on Twitter as well, Sarah underscore Mednick. And then, you know, you can follow me there and I'll usually post podcasts or events that I'm doing. Okay. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So I want to thank you so much for this. This is just like a taste. Thanks, Donna. It's been really fun. Yeah. <laughs> information. And you and I are going to talk about part two. It was such a pleasure to have you on. And thank you for your good work in the world. You really oh, do. Thank you. You really I contribute beautifully. Thanks, Thanks Sarah. <laughs> Thanks.